Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey there, everybody. This is Jeremy. With me today in the studio is my friend David Fletcher. How's it going, everybody? And sad to say, we don't have our good friend Mr. Luke Galen with us this morning. Little Luke is sick. Yeah, Luke has the sniffles. He wasn't able to make it in, and quite frankly, we didn't want to share a small sound booth with him and get contaminated ourselves. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with that under the best of circumstances, but when he's actually sick, that, that it's true. Luke will be back, however, to join us in the next episode, so we don't have to worry about him. Later on the show, we're going to hear the first part of a two-part interview that we've done with Tanner Edis. The first part of the interview that you'll be hearing today has to deal with Islamic pseudoscience in particular, and the relationship of the Muslim world to science and the scientific enterprise in general. Then when we return next week, we will focus on issues regarding secularists, atheists, skeptics, and their views on Islam and Tanner's commentary regarding that. I believe that's what they call a teaser. A teaser. Nice little little tease. Tune in next week. That's right. Some juicy stuff coming up next week. Mm -hmm. We're going to ease into it, though. So as part of a lead-up to the Tanner interview, we wanted to discuss a topic that regards Islam in the news. We haven't done a lot of Islam so far. No, we haven't. Uh, I think it's probably because on on this part of the state where we're at in in West Michigan— we we deal with a different brand of religion, um, the one that people are probably most familiar with, uh, which is conservative Christianity. Mm-hmm. However, uh, as far as our Michigan listeners are concerned, people on the east side of the state, near Dearborn and everything else, actually have quite a bit of interaction with Islam. Uh, there are many Muslim people in that area. And so hopefully, if you've ever encountered a little bit of Islamic pseudoscience yourself, hopefully we'll be able to provide a little bit more of a context for understanding that and responding to it. And I think everybody could use just a little bit of a primer on the religion in general. I, I don't think a lot of us are familiar with it. And unfortunately, in these times of violence and extremism. Even critical thinkers, even skeptics and atheists need to be on their guard to try to understand what uh, what are legitimate criticisms of Islam and what is hysteria. So we're not very equipped to provide you with that, but Tanner Edis most certainly is. And so we're very, very thankful that he was able to join us on the show. But first, we have an article from... Asia Times, www.atimes.com, written by an author named Spangler. We can only assume his first name is Egon, but uh, that that may or may not actually be true. Throwing it out for the Ghostbusters fans out there. The name of it, uh, the name of the article is Indiana Jones Meets the Da Vinci Code. Which sounds awesome right there. (laughs) You'd have no indication that it was about Islam whatsoever from the headline. Spangler begins, Islam Watchers blogged all weekend about news that a secret 
archive of ancient Islamic texts had surfaced after 60 years of suppression. The Wall Street Journal report by Andrew Higgins that the photographic record of Quranic manuscripts supposedly destroyed during World War II but occulted by a scholar of allegedly Nazi sympathies reads like a conflation of the Da Vinci Code with Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. So there's the purpose of his headline. Which is, by the way, not the title of any of the Indiana Jones movies. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, not Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. Yes. Get your Lucas films right. Yeah. So I'll read you a brief snippet from the Wall Street Journal report that gives a little bit of the history of exactly what happened. On the night of April 24th, 1944, British Air Force bombers hammered a former Jesuit college housing the Bavarian Academy of Science. The 16th century building crumbled in the inferno. Among the treasures lost, later lamented Anton Spatler, an Arabic scholar at the academy, was a unique photo archive of ancient manuscripts of the Quran. The 450 rolls of film had been assembled before the war for a bold venture, a study of the evolution of the Quran the text Muslims view as the verbatim transcript of God's word. The wartime destruction made the project outright impossible, Mr. Spetler said. Mr. Spetler was lying. The cache of photos survived, and he was sitting on it all along. The truth only now dribbling out to scholars and a Quran research project buried for more than 60 years has risen from the grave. Why Spetler concealed the archive is unknown, but Quranic critics who challenge the received Muslim account, suspect his motives. And basically the motives that they suspect is that there are some Nazi sympathies involved. So what do the Nazis have to do with Islam? Because it seems like the reason to suppress this would be for for Muslims because this obviously calls into question the legitimacy of the, of the holy text. Where do the Nazis fit in? Right. Well, I'm I'm not entirely sure of the full context, but the report that we have in front of us speaks of, uh, well, I'll just read the quote here. Why were the Nazis so eager to suppress Quranic criticism? Most likely the answer lies in their allegiance with Islamist leaders who shared their hatred of the Jews and also sought leveraging against the British in the Middle East. So apparently that explains maybe why it was originally suppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it still going on today? Why is the archives custodian keeping access away from scholars that don't have a traditional viewpoint? That's, that's a much more difficult question to answer. Uh, perhaps a more general question that's logically prior is why is it such a big deal in the first place? Part of it has to deal with the fact that if you were to have several early texts of the Quran that contained in them multiple variations, this would make something like um, redaction criticism, what we do to the New Testament and Old Testament all the time, Mm -hmm. this would make this possible and uh, much more easier to do with the Quran. So the assertions of Islam is that the Quran was dictated to Muhammad from the angel, correct? Yeah. Um, Basically, using Christianity as a frame of reference, the view of inspiration that most people have is, yes, Mm -hmm. okay, um, the text is in some way inspired by God and the word of God. However, um, it was clearly 
it, it was given to human authors, and it's going to be pretty rare that you will find many evangelical Christians, even conservative Christians today, who would stand by the view that it was dictated as is directly from the sky into human mm-hmm. minds. They believe that the human authors had their own influence. Uh, with the Quran, it's not the same thing. Muhammad, when receiving these inspirations, went into a trance, they believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, his utterances then were carefully recorded by those who were present. Okay. So this um, – we don't have a situation where um, particular cultural linguistic influences are supposed to be coming together to create some sort of document that's somehow still inspired. Mm-hmm. We have a situation where God is speaking directly to the prophet and those are the words on high. In fact, Muslims will distinguish the heavenly Quran and the earthly Quran. The idea being that the truth of the Quran is a transcendent truth. It is um, it is ultimate truth, and the earthly Quran is the earthly Quran is that infinite truth brought to the level of understanding that a human is possible of having. Um, the idea that there could be historical influences, that this went through many drafts and revisions, that it might have borrowed from the surrounding mythologies and philosophies of the time is very scandalous even to Muslims that aren't extreme fundamentalists. Right. The, the comparison that, that Spengler makes is that that this is the equivalent of saying that uh, – the Jesus Christ of the Gospels was, and I'm quoting here, really a composite of several individuals, some of whom lived a century or two apart. So, Which is exactly say, what we've learned with Christianity. Well, yes, but, but that's – and that's something that Christians have been dealing with for a while now right. or, or avoiding dealing with for a while now. So for this to come out for uh, Muslims, that's a, that's a big deal. Right, and you can look at uh, books like Ibn Warraq what the Quran really says mm-hmm. um, and and get a quick sense that there there is some of this material out there. There are variants that are available. There are, um, there are clues within the language itself that scholars can look at to see an evolving Quran. But Quranic criticism in the sense of, you know, being analogous to biblical criticism that we do here in the West is – in its infancy at best, and it is not very supported by institutions and many of the people who are the best equipped to do that sort of work. Um, Why are variants so important? Returning back to the term redaction criticism, for our listeners who may not know much about this, I guess we'll have a little skeptic Sunday school in miniature. (laughs) Um, Redaction criticism, to simplify it and and put it in brief, is is basically – when we have variants of a text, when we have texts that have differences in the accounts, uh, if we have any sort of idea of a time frame and, and which were most likely to come first, you can actually say quite a bit about what the authors intended or their particular views or influences um, by that. So to put it into a concrete example, um, in in the Bible – you can compare the accounts of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. And if you look at, say, say the Gospel of Mark, which is considered to be the earliest, you'll see that Jesus just simply and straightforwardly gets baptized, um, and God says to him, 
uh, during his baptism, he says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. If you turn to Matthew, you will see that during his baptism, it's almost exactly the same except the Pharisees are present and John takes a moment to berate them as not being worthy to be baptized. And that once Jesus gets baptized, the voice from heaven does not speak to Jesus personally. He doesn't say, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. He says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, these could just seem like little idiosyncrasies of the text, but when you look at these differences, if you see that they continue to link up with their particular authors, that they are consistent strains throughout the text, well, then you have a much more reliable way of sorting out which influences were bearing on the text and uh, uh, perhaps the bias of the text's authors. So, for example, using the same example, um, in Mark, the people don't seem to understand who this suffering Messiah is. They don't fully grasp his ministry. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus gets a private revelation, whereas in Matthew, the people are held accountable. They had every reason to know who Jesus was, and he publicly affirmed his divinity, or, uh, well, rather, they, he publicly affirmed his own status as being the Messiah. And so a public pronouncement makes a lot of sense. Matthew also steps up the criticism of the Pharisees quite a bit, and so that's a consistent theme in Matthew too. And so we can speculate on that. Well, perhaps the author of Matthew's gospel had difficulties dealing with Pharisaic Jews in his particular area. Um, we know that Mark was written earlier, and so we can we can use that. We can use looking at the similarities and differences as a guide to piecing together a rough skeleton of how these texts and traditions evolved. Now, if we suddenly get a bunch of manuscripts of the Quran that have you know a, a rich um, that have a rich repository, I suppose you could say, of variants, mm -hmm. scholars can begin engaging in that sort of critical scholarship. Can begin to learn something about the authors yes. of each of them, they which can... is a problem because the author should be um, Mohammed speaking um, the direct inspired word of God, and there shouldn't be any variation. It would be very challenging to the scriptural authority of the Quran, no doubt. Hmm. Now, resistance to this type of scholarship probably is not all that dissimilar to resistance to other forms of critical scholarship and learning uh, that might challenge conservative interpretations of Islam. So, uh, to discuss that matter further, we bring you Tanner Edis. We're very pleased to have on the show today Tanner Edis. Tanner Edis is an associate professor of physics at Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. He is also the associate editor for reports of the National Center for Science Education. You may know him from his articles in Free Inquiry, Skeptical Inquirer, Skeptic Magazine, and The Humanist. His latest book, An Illusion of Harmony, Science and Religion in Islam, explores a world that many of us skeptics here in America are much less familiar with, the world of Islamic pseudoscience. And it's that topic that we'll be discussing with him today. Tanner Edis, thanks for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, thanks for inviting me. 
This past July, Reasonable Doubts discussed an article about Turkish scientists that were confronting the creationists in Turkey. There was an organization called uh, the BAV that had mass-mailed a huge book called The Atlas of Creation to several scientists and to schools throughout Western Europe. And this seemed like the typical creationist textbook. Photographs of fossils and species, and but claiming that, uh, arguing that there were gaps, that there was no evidence that species would adapt with time, and even started blaming the theory of evolution and belief in Darwinism for things like communism, uh, Nazism, actually even the World Trade Center attacks. Now, I know that you spent part of your life in Turkey. Yeah, I grew up in Turkey. The first 20 years of my life, including my college years, were spent in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Is creationism in Turkey a more recent phenomena? Or? Well, it depends on what level of creationism you're talking about. Uh, if you, Creationism as a public movement, creationism as something that has influence on the educational system is something that has become prominent in the last 20 years. However, this does not mean that before the mid-80s when creationism Mm -hmm. became a big thing in Turkey, it does not mean that, say, the Turkish population was very receptive to evolutionary ideas to begin with. Uh, The Turkish population has always been generally pretty devout Mm -hmm. and Darwinian thinking has been pretty alien to people. Usually people, if they have not been creationists in Turkey, uh, it has been often because they did not know much about evolution to react against in the first place. Only 25% of Turks accepted evolution. Uh, As many as 50% of science teachers say that they've either, either struggled with or rejected evolutionary theory. But my understanding is that Turkey is one of the most westernized of Muslim societies. Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, Since the Turkish Revolution of the 1920s, uh, Turkey has officially uh, taken a very secular, Western-oriented path uh, in that uh, it has tried to suppress uh, political forms of Islam and many popular forms of Islam and try to have uh, religion retreat to a private sphere that would not interfere in the business of government. Uh, However... Uh, Beyond the revolutionary generation in Turkey, that strict notion of secularism has always somewhat been in retreat. And particularly since the 1980s, uh, secularism in Turkey is really, uh, right now, pretty much on life support. Hmm. Uh, It depends on, uh, on institutional support from the military, which is still insistently secularist, Uh, But it does not have uh, what you might call a popular base of support. Uh, Secularism in Turkey is on the way out. Uh, It's against uh, the, if you want, the democratic tendencies of Turkish politics. It's against the wishes of a Turkish population that's generally remained devout, even though uh, it has modernized in many ways. So you have some secularism in Turkey is probably going to remain at an institutional level. Uh, but you can also expect more and more of a religious coloring entering into uh, politics and government in Turkey. Uh, This doesn't mean that it's going to turn into Saudi Arabia or Iran. Uh, I I, I doubt Turkey will ever become a theocracy, Uh, but a couple of generations ago when you could point to Turkey as being an example of a secular Muslim country, it's uh, less and less so these days. Can Turkey serve in any sort of way as a test case for looking at 
modernizing influences on Islam throughout the ge- general Muslim world, or is it too atypical? Uh, uh, well, yes and no. Uh, Turkey is a very good place to investigate if you're interested in, say, for example, the intellectual debates that Muslims have been having for the past couple of centuries about modernization and westernization, uh, because uh, Turkey has been closest to Western Europe and has undertaken in the 20th century the most radical program of secularization and westernization. And therefore, the, the most advanced forms of the debate about westernization and Islam has occurred in Turkey. Uh, there are other places in the Islamic world that have contributed a lot to this too, say for example, Egypt, Iran, uh, the Indian subcontinent, uh, but all of that you can find echoes of in Turkey as well. However, if you're talking about an actual political direction taken by a country, uh, Turkey is not necessarily typical in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Islamic world is vast, and if you're talking about more than a billion people and many countries that are very different, even though they share a common religion, uh, this means that the options that they're going to pursue in trying to reconcile religion and modernity will tend to be different. Uh, and so Turkey is not necessarily a model for the Islamic world in that sense. As far as um, modernity is concerned, one solution one might think is to improve the stance of science in the minds of the public in Muslim countries. You've written in your book, an illusion of harmony that attempts to improve the status of science are often viewed as just another push for westernization to be reacted against. Uh, it depends on what context you're advocating for science in uh, in, in an Islamic environment. Uh, very often, advocacy for science in Turkey in particular and very often in the Islamic world as a whole has been connected to secularizing trends in politics and westernizing trends in culture. And therefore, especially among more devout segments of the population, uh, there is going to be at least a residual distrust uh, because of this association with secularism. However, uh, I should not give the impression that because of this, uh, Muslims are distrustful of science. Uh, Very often, it's quite the opposite that's true. Uh, You will find uh, among devout Muslims of all stripes, uh, you will very often find uh, very strongly pro-technology attitudes Mm -hmm. and at least superficially pro-science attitudes as it's linked to technology. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the Islamic world right now is such a hotbed for various forms of religiously colored pseudosciences. It's, pr- it's precisely because people are very aware of the power of modern technology and very aware of the connection between modern technology and science that they feel this need to appropriate science for their own cultural needs, uh, for a more modern form of their traditional religion. And uh, it seems that many people try to achieve this by distorting science, uh, such as uh, modern biology or physics coming up with versions of creationism, for example. So in some way, it's kind of, uh, it's only because science does have some credibility in these societies that we would even get 
Islamic pseudoscience. Oh, very much so. And in fact, the, it, the same thing is true in the United States. You have creationism in the United States, the Christian version of creationism in the United States. Their constituency is not people who are anti-modern, anti-technological. In fact, quite the opposite. Right. And the same is true if you look at it in a Muslim context as well. The market for the kind of creationist pseudoscience that you pointed out is becoming very popular, the Hari Yahya literature and so forth. The market for this is not people who are barely literate living in uh, village circumstances. The market for this are urbanized people, people who depend on technology for their living, and people who have ambitions to take their role uh, in a modern economy. Uh, and this is why they're so attracted to creationism in the first place. So could you give me an example of a popular Islamic pseudoscience? Uh, creationism is certainly one. Another form of pseudoscience that's uh, perhaps more specific to the Islamic world and unfamiliar to a more uh, Christian-familiar audience uh, would be the notion of trying to find uh, echoes of modern science and technology in the ancient verses of the Quran. Mm -hmm. Now, you find some Christian parallels to this. If you look into especially the more fundamentalist kind of Christian literature, you will find people claiming that various, say, laws of physics or technology like radio and electromagnetism were actually expressed in Bible verses. Mm -hmm. But actually, this type of apologetics is not very common in Christian circles. This is a very minor point. However, if you look at the Muslim world, the belief that if you look at the verses of Scripture, in their case the Quran, that you can find uh, modern technology and modern science prefigured in verses that are supposed to be revealed uh, 1,400 years ago, uh, this is actually a much more common belief and a much more prominent theme in contemporary Muslim apologetics. In fact, it's so strong that uh, the comparison I would make with the Christian apologetic world would go more along these lines. In contemporary Christian apologetics, if a Christian is trying to make the case that the Bible is inspired, uh, the Word of God directly, and also try to make a sort of modern case for this, uh, mm -hmm. they are likely to end up uh, bringing up the notion of biblical prophecy very, very strongly. Mm -hmm. In the Muslim world, you will find very few references to, say, an equivalent Quranic prophecy. Hmm. Uh, there are some beliefs about this that exist, but uh, the role it plays is very, very small. But the role of biblical prophecy in Christian apologetics today in the Muslim world, uh, a similar role to that is played by the notion that you can find science in the Quran. Um, so this is somehow related then to to a different way in which they hold views as pertains to Revelation, I'm assuming? Uh, Why the, there would be such a difference? Well, partially, yes, because the Quran really is not all that similar to the Bible in terms of how it presents, say, uh, its, its view of Revelation and so forth. The Quran is a recitation. Uh, it's not a collection of books written by different people over many, many centuries. And uh, therefore, the way that Muslims view, say, the notion of sacred history, uh, the notion of what might be revealed about nature through the, world, uh, through the Word of God, is sometimes subtly and sometimes more strongly different than Christian views about mm -hmm. what's going on. That being said, however, I generally, when talking about Islam, I want to be careful uh, to 
not give the audience an impression that Muslim thought and even Muslim apologetics is something that proceeds directly out of the Quran. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not true uh, any more than, uh, say, Christian apologetics is something that directly proceeds out of an unmediated reading of the Bible. Right. Uh, if you want to understand what Muslims are saying, uh, you have to pay perhaps a lot more attention to their present, say, social context and history and the literature that has developed uh, in the Muslim world rather than just looking at the Quran. The Quran really won't tell you a lot that will help you understand, mm-hmm. say, modern Islamic creationism. Can you give me an example of something that some um, Muslim apologists would use uh, as an example of something that is in the Quran that prefigures scientific discoveries in their view? Oh, the, the examples are really endless. Uh, for example, one popular view is that there are certain Quranic verses that talk about uh, two seas. And uh, some people have interpreted this as the two seas coming together but not mixing. Some people have interpreted it as talking about, uh, say, the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. And therefore, the Quran was saying way back when that it was possible to build a canal, like the Suez Canal, between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Another popular interpretation of those same verses is the notion that it was actually talking about the Straits of Gibraltar where because of the difference in salinity of the Atlantic Ocean and the inland sea of the Mediterranean, the mixing of the two seas, bodies of salt water, is actually impeded. And so there's this kind of a salinity barrier, you might say, between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. Uh, Many people believe now that this is a miraculous prefiguration of that oceanographic discovery. In fact, there's a very (laughs) interesting uh, kind of a urban legend that is associated with it. Many people have heard of Jacques Cousteau, the famed French underwater explorer. And a common legend uh, popular in Muslim circles is that one day when Cousteau was exploring the Straits of Gibraltar, he ran into this phenomenon of the salinity barrier between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean and uh, was very curious about it. And somehow, the versions of this somehow differ from story to story, but somehow a Muslim pointed out to him the relevant verses in the Quran, and most versions of the story go on to say that actually Cousteau converted to Muslim <laughs> uh, to, to Islam uh, because of examples like this. I mean, it's totally not true, uh, but it, it's kind of an interesting story that gives you an idea of uh, curiously Muslims trying to validate Muslim belief by appealing to the authority of a Western scientific figure. Interesting. Uh, And there are many other examples. Uh, One very common one is uh, the notion that the Quran reveals details of, say, human embryological development that could not have been known 1,400 years ago. It's not at all true if you really want to understand the Quranic verses that uh, talk about uh, human development. You should be looking at ancient Greek medicine, not modern medicine. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite examples is... There are verses in the Quran that talk about the seven skies or the seven heavens. And repeatedly, without actually mentioning what this is, the assumption is that the audience at the time would know what the Quran was talking about. And, of course, if you're a modern Muslim with an inclination to look for validation of your beliefs in the verses of the Quran, uh, 
talking about seven skies, it's going to immediately seem to you that here the Quran is talking about something about the universe, talking about something right. about astrophysics and things like that. And there are different, of course, interpretations of, of vague reference to uh, seven layers of skies. I mean, what on earth could this be? Or, or rather, what in the skies could this be? And uh, one popular interpretation in Turkey has been uh, that this is about astrophysics and that this is about uh, a layered structure of the heavens. And you read this sort of literature, and this is something that especially interests me as a physicist, uh, it's a total mishmash and misunderstanding right. of our modern understanding of the universe. There's nothing like a layered structure of skies that you can find in modern astrophysics. However, if again you look back to the ancient understanding of how the universe was structured, which was current at Quranic times, uh, then you find that uh, layered views of the universe were actually the conventional wisdom of that time. Mm -hmm. In other words, you look at Ptolemaic astronomy and you look at seven layers of skies corresponding to the seven planets recognized in that day. And so I look at this. sense in that context. Yeah, I look at this, I say, what is more likely that the Quran is talking about a Ptolemaic cosmology, which is way superseded today, or is it talking about something that has some vague resemblance and even that's stretching it to modern science? Since I'm more familiar with Christian apologetics, what comes to mind immediately for me is um, sometimes creationists will talk about God separating the waters from the waters, and they'll come up with this elaborate idea of a vapor hood yeah. that yeah, covered the, the, the earth. vapor canopy theory, right? Right. Whereas, if you look at ancient Near Eastern texts, the cosmology of the age, it's not all that different from oh, yeah. what you'll find in the Enuma Elish. In the West, we, uh, in in the Christian West, I suppose, we have a growing tradition of biblical criticism, where people have taken keen interest in the historical development of the Hebrew Bible and of the New Testament, and have looked for these mythic parallels, but my understanding is that in the Islamic world, uh, anything like Quranic criticism is much, much less acceptable. Uh, true. It's practically non-existent, and what you very often find in the Islamic world or uh, in academic institutions located in the Islamic world is that uh, very often uh, scholars will try and make small moves uh, towards a more modern understanding of religious texts that would emphasize the human nature of the religions that have been built around them. Uh, but in the Muslim world, movements in this direction are very tentative. They do not go very far, uh, and even they tend to meet with uh, very strong public condemnation so that a scholar can run into trouble for espousing views that, say, in a Christian context, would not necessarily even be considered all that, uh, all that liberal, really. So, uh, for example, Egyptian scholars have run into problems for proposing that, say, evolution may have applied to a certain degree all the way up till, say, humans in which case humans were created by divine intervention, nonetheless by infusion of a spirit <laughs> and so on and so forth. Now, a view like this in a Christian context, okay, it's not literalist, but it's, it's what you might call more moderate rather than even liberal. Right. But in the Muslim world, a view like this 
would probably be on the fringe of acceptability. It's an ultra-liberal kind of view. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about a devout Muslim intellectual context, you also have to realize that in the Muslim world, there are many people who have been, if you want, to a certain degree, westernized, much more exposed to Western intellectual currents, who would, say, teach in university located in Istanbul or Islamabad, uh, who would want nothing to do with uh, the some sort of creationist view of things. Right. But uh, this type of sort of academically respectable view tends to have very little connection with the public at large. Mm-hmm. So in intellectuals, modern-oriented intellectuals in an Islamic context can feel very isolated because of this. Now, if we should a- avoid the assumption that this is somehow mandated by the Quran itself, uh, how did the Muslim world get into this situation? Why is the situation so different? Uh, there's no single cause I think that should be emphasized way over the others in that there seem to be a multiple sort of many times historical accidents that have come together to uh, have the Islamic world's response to science in particular be rather different than what we're used to in the modern West. Uh, One example with this, uh, you can, for example, if you look for it, find certain Quranic reasons why Muslims would be more reluctant to depart from a literal interpretation of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that would be this. The Quran to Islam is more central than the Bible is to Christianity. In a sense that theologically speaking in Christianity, the word of God is not so much the Bible as it's supposed to be the son of God, Jesus. Right. And the Bible may, even though many people believe it to be inspired, even inerrant, uh, is really a report about the revelation rather than necessarily directly the revelation itself. Mm -hmm. So in Christianity, at least there's some theological space, even among conservatives, uh, to keep the Bible at a remove as a witness to the word of God rather than something directly spoken by God. In the Muslim context, this thing's a little bit different because the Quran is not supposed to be the word of God as mediated by inspired human writers. The Quran is supposed to be the word of God directly, unadulterated by any sort of human contact, Mm -hmm. really. And the divinity of the Quran is much more of a central idea in Islam because the word of God is the Quran. Muhammad is merely a prophet, the instrument of the word of God. And so, therefore, theologically, Christendom has found it difficult to move in a more liberal direction. But in the end, it has been somewhat possible to start saying that, uh, hey, this religion is supposed to be about Jesus. And maybe the human witnesses to Jesus are flawed in certain ways, or they reflect the nature of the times in which the Bible was written, so on and so forth. There's that wiggle room there. Right. So... Of course, there's a lot of controversy within Christianity about whether uh, that wiggle room should have been taken to the extent that, say, liberal theologians do today. Yes. (laughs) But at least uh, there has been historically that uh, wiggle room that when the opportunity came, many thinkers took it. It's much more difficult to do that in an Islamic context because it is supposed to be the word of God directly, unadulterated, not touched by human contingencies. Now, I've heard about the distinction between the earthly Quran and the heavenly Quran. I mean, there is 
there is some sense that they have that this has to be encapsulated in, in language. Uh, so therefore, it's it's not as if the Quran is Allah himself. Correct. Um, is is that any basis for liberalizing or it or? may be, but it will whether that opportunity will be taken depends on historical accidents, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me try and explain that a bit more. When you're talking about, say, for example, the distinction between the heavenly Quran and the earthly Quran, uh, it's partially has to do with the fact that. Muslims, at least knowledgeable Muslims, uh, may even sometimes go so far as acknowledging that the Quran is not a complete collection of the revelations that were handed down to Muhammad uh, in 1400 years ago. Uh, but the, so there's a possibility that well, some things were sort of handed down from the heavenly Quran, but are not reflected in the earthly Quran we have in front of us right now. Nonetheless, you will find practically no one compromising on the notion that the Quran that we do have is, in fact, directly the word of God. It might not be a complete. Hmm. And also most people, and the overwhelming majority of people, would go on and add that the Quran that we have is completely adequate for uh, any earthly purpose. And any of Muhammad's revelations that might not have made it to the uh, Quran that was compiled a generation later, there was good divine reason perhaps behind that, that it was irrelevant whatever might have been left out. The kind of wiggle room about interpreting the Quran that you might find in Muslim history is a little bit different than this whole notion of the heavenly Quran and the earthly Quran. Because there have been many Muslim uh, movements, sects, heresies, and so forth, who have decided that, uh, okay, you take the Quran at the face value, which is most often the literal reading, but also insist that there is a most more esoteric, hidden way of interpreting the Quran that goes beyond okay. the literal interpretation of the texts that are promulgated by the Orthodox Muslim scholars. So this type of uh, esoteric interpretation of the Quran uh, has some roots, uh, particularly interestingly enough, in Shia Islam. Mm-hmm. And it may, uh, if the historical circumstances are right, it may be a basis for moving away from a more literalist reading of the text. So that's part one of our interview with Tanner Edis, and I think part two will be um, a lot more challenging to people of a skeptical persuasion. Um, if you're like me— And <clears throat> heaven help you if you are. Yeah, so you, you should probably be like someone else. But um, I know with Islam, I, I have a very difficult time. Um, part of this comes from my role as teaching world religions to students. I don't want to bring my secular biases and fears um, to that religion in a way that would um, that would skew the perception of it for somebody who's never encountered it before. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very hard if anybody's out there and they 
don't have any background in Islam. They didn't grow up learning about this tradition. And you're just now trying. It's very, very difficult to get a true sense of the religion, partially for reasons Tanner spoke of, is that there is no single Islam. It's a very diverse tradition. Uh, but also because it's it's difficult to know who to trust. You have people like Sam Harris, who um, I, I generally have pretty high regard for, who will say things like their their religion deranges good people and speaks very, very negatively of mm-hmm. Islam. Then you have on the complete other side of the spectrum, people like Karen Armstrong, who says that the tolerance that Muhammad modeled for us in the Quran and the Hadith, that, that we need a little more of that for these troubled times and that it, it re- truly is a religion of peace and uh, a religion of tolerance. It's very difficult to find somebody who isn't either completely trying to tear down Islam or is being an apologist for it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to wrestle with some of those difficulties in part two of the Islam interview. So make sure you come back next week. But let's lighten it up a little bit. There was generally a pretty positive reaction to the past couple of episodes we've had. We got a lot more listener email than we're accustomed to getting, and we really appreciate hearing from you guys. And I think we wanted to take a look at some of that. Absolutely. Let's uh, open up our mailbag. First off, we've got a letter from uh, Jay in response to Tracy's letter that we talked about um, on episode seven, when she asked things about, um, you know, what is a militant atheist and what do I do when someone sneezes? Well, Jay's response to that particular question, and I think it's a really good one, is, quote, don't say anything. Be a practical atheist. Keep a pack of tissues in your pocket and, without saying a (laughs) word, offer one. Keeping a friend's or work colleague's sleeve from getting snotty has much more value than any meaningless words. And I think that's a great idea. Um, I like Jay's approach. Yeah, absolutely. He goes on to say, that being said, sometimes when I'm feeling particularly cavalier and someone blesses me, a quick reply of, thank you, your eminence, puts (laughs) people in an appropriate state of (laughs) self-reflection. I've also been known to start calling people Pope especially to those I know who are cultural Christians, that is, not practicing or even very believing but grew up with that background, and who just respond to sneezes with a Pavlovian reaction. Um, But the best part of Jay's email, I think, is where he says, P.S., more Carl Sagan impersonations. Oh, yeah, I... Now, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> now I have to say, Andrean is is a close personal friend of mine. So I, I met her once. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's I, what I was gonna say. I'm, I'm not. I'm not getting into that. But I. I can't be held accountable for uh, what Jeremy. Well, that's kind of why. I wasn't all that comfortable doing the Carl Sagan impression. Is that we're hoping to get Andrean on the show. And I certainly wouldn't want to do anything that would seem aloof well, in her presence. And, and it should be noted that, that the Carl Sagan impressions are, are, are done out of love. Oh, um, absolutely. He's my hero. Yeah, yeah. Much like how um, Luke does a Kermit the Frog impression. Um, also a hero of his. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I esteem Carl Sagan, Luke's into Kermit D. Frog. 
So, uh, but yeah, his Jared Diamond is spot on too. Is that one done out of respect as well? Oh um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, most okay. certainly. Yes. Yeah, totally geeking out. Yeah, I, I don't really unapologetic do geeking in, out in, impressions, but uh, no, but you, you know, you're just generally funny. Well, after editing, so, <laughs> um, so oh, I'm sure Carl Sagan will uh, rear his head again. Um, We've got another letter from uh, Jason who starts off by uh, praising us an embarrassing amount, and and we always love to hear that. Um, Jason, who is a fellow Michigander, Jason is another Michigander who, who, like me, had a religious Boy Scout kind of troop that that he was in. I was in the cadets, which we talked about uh, a couple of episodes ago, and Jason was in a group um, from his Pentecostal church called the Royal Rangers. The Royal Rangers. The Royal Rangers. And he says the girls had the missionettes. Wow, like the Calvinettes. Exactly. And and Jason says, is it just me or does the feminine ending on the name have a slightly demeaning tone? Perhaps it does. I, I would say very much so. Are the missionettes and the Calvinettes, are they allowed to talk at their meetings or do they have to ask their boyfriends at home? Um, well, it depends. With with the Calvinettes, I know it depends on whether or not they're predestined to, to talk. Oh, okay. Um, with the Missionettes, I think if um, if the Spirit moves them, then absolutely. Um, as long as it's in tongues. Exactly. <laughs> so, what, what is a young girl speaking in tongues? What, what sort of— Hearing teenage girls talk normally, I sometimes even it's... begin to— to think about what uh, speaking in tongues would sound like. Yeah, you need a spiritual gift to decipher that. So yeah. I... um, Jason goes on to say that, uh, I sometimes wonder why the churches didn't think the Boy Scouts were Christian enough for them. It's like, I really, really need my child to be able to camp properly and tie knots in an emergency, but those damned Boy Scouts might have a heathen or two in their ranks. But they'd never say damn, of course, Jason points out. Um and I don't think the Boy Scouts actually do allow heathens because you have to, to pledge obedience to God, but it could be any God. So I guess there's yeah. I guess there's that brand of heathen, not unbelievers, but uh, non-Christians. Yeah. For some people, any amount of exposure to different influences is probably too much. Absolutely. Even a nice conservative paramilitary organization such as the Boy Scouts of right. America. And the, Which I was a Boy Scout. Were you really? Yeah. Uh, my uh, my father-in-law is a uh, scout leader, something like that. So, you know, Boy Scouts do good works. So I just wish they would stay out of public schools. I tell you, I love camping. I love camping and backpacking and all that stuff. Uh, so so I, I think they played a good role in my childhood. But I was lucky enough to have scout masters who weren't complete reactionary um, pricks. Speaking of... Scout masters. Jason says that the um, Royal Rangers did not have scout leaders. They had people called commanders. <laughs> Talk about being militant. He says, as in, Commander Smith, I led three kids to the Lord. Can I have my evangelism badge now? <laughs> um, and he says, as far as he knows, there was no glossolalia merit badge, but that would have been cool. A little tongue of fire or something. Uh. Uh, so that that's great, Jason. I think I think I emailed him back after reading that and said, uh, "If we need a fourth member, you're on the short list." Absolutely, that was that was awesome. And, and he is a Michigander, yeah. So, he know. fits in well. Uh, one more letter here from Ryan, who um, is concerned that 
there isn't a lot of atheism in today's culture, pop culture um, specifically. Like he says, quote, there's plenty of Christian rock bands and every country album has a song like Jesus Take the Wheel on it, which is, man, is that a loaded song? And he points out that Jesus would probably not be a very good driver and he would have to go to Sears Driving School, which, by the way, I did have to go to Sears Driving School. I think it'd be great. He could just part the traffic and, you know, well, that would be more of a Moses thing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I'm sure Jesus comes equipped with the same tricks. Absolutely. Um, but he says there's very few secular songs um, that he knows of. He says his favorites are... Tool's song Opiate. Very, very good. Yeah. Which I had not, I was not aware of, but Jeremy says is, is really good. Um, and A Perfect Circle has a cover of Imagine, the uh, Lennon song. And now, Perfect fact, Circle has a lot of good, um, I guess you could say, anti-religious songs too. Um, I, I'm not familiar with them and I'm going to have to... They're like the feminine side of Tool, I think, is the cliche that's often brought up about mm -hmm. them. And um, I, I'm not really into the to the heavy music at all, but I right. can appreciate a uh, perfect circle um, a lot more than I can enjoy Tool, even though I respect Tool and think that uh, as far as that genre of music is concerned, uh, the, they're, the, they're the ones to listen to out mm -hmm. there. Sure. Ryan ends by saying, do you know of any other songs or bands that share our viewpoint? I, uh, I'm sure you could turn some Robert Ingersoll into some fat hip-hop rap, <laughs> which, uh, man, would I Oh, I'd the Ingersoll remix. That. Oh, that would be great. The problem is the audio that's available from Robert Ingersoll is one of the original audio recordings ever Absolutely. made by Thomas Edison himself. So I, I don't know. Uh, it, would be tough to, it would be tough to mix. Yeah. Yeah, they were, <clears throat> they were buddies, uh, Ingersoll and Edison, I believe. Yeah. And Helen Keller was uh, mixed into that crowd too. Also um, a good heathen that Helen Keller was. Um, so I've got a few... Um, suggestions. This has kind of been a personal project of mine for a year or so to, to find heathen music. And there's some really good stuff out there. There's a lot that's, that are from bands that are non-religious and have kind of a secular viewpoint, but it doesn't come through terribly clearly. Uh, that's what I've noticed. I can yeah. find a lot of tracks. I have a lot of tracks on my MP3 player that are mm -hmm. pretty good, fire you up for skepticism stuff, but I like Artists that seem to have that as a dedicated message, I don't it's, know it's too hard many. To come by. And there, there isn't an atheism section in the record store, so that makes it harder too. A uh, few suggestions I have. I Ain't Afraid by Holly Near, which is used as the uh, Humanist Network News podcast theme song, um, but it's a good little song. Um, Dear God by XTC, going back to the 80s, great tune. Um <laughs> Operation Spirit, parentheses, The Tyranny of Tradition by the band Live. Uh, Blasphemous Rumors by Depeche Mode. And I know there'll, there'll be a, a few people from CFI Michigan who are very excited to hear Depeche Mode referenced uh, <laughs> on the show. Um, w one of my favorite uh, political slash religious songs Keep Your Jesus Off My Penis by Eric Schwartz. Which I believe is on your MySpace. It is it? on my MySpace. God Thinks by a band called Voltaire, which is a good sign right there. Pretty much anything by Bad Religion. They are kind of the original atheist rock band. Um, atheist Peace is one of uh, my oh, favorites. Oh, which, by the way, um, 
isn't the lead singer from Bad Religion? Um, mm-hmm. Has a doctorate in astrophysics or something? Absolutely. I'm not sure. I, I don't want to get the details wrong, but I believe he even uh, co-wrote a book on atheism, a chat between uh, a religious fan of his. Yeah, it's the correspondence between him and I believe um, a theology student or a minister or something. And um, uh, So there's actually – I'm not sure about the lyrics. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of bad religion, but mm-hmm. uh, at least the, the person seems to have a, a level of sophistication about it. Yeah, um, bad religion, my, my one comment about them is they are kind of the kings of the minute and a half rock song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very much a punk thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but they've got some good lyrics there. Uh, Jordan Zevon, the son of the late great Warren Zevon of uh, Werewolves of London fame and uh, my personal favorite, um, has a song called Too Late to Be Saved, which is another um, – uh, the Flaming Lips. Love the Lips. Yep, they've Love got the uh, a bunch of songs. They have a lot of good agnostic anthems, I would yes. say. Yes. Uh, Do You Realize uh, and Vein of Stars would yeah, be Vein two of that stars, are um, definitely. good agnostic anthems. Um, there's a classic uh, Dutch freethought anthem. And uh, for those of you who speak uh, German or low German, Wow, we're scraping the uh, bottom of the barrel here. Well, Dave. it's a great song. Uh, Die Gedanken sing frei, which oh, means yeah. my thoughts are free. Um, and you can find <laughs> various versions of that on iTunes. And, of course, John Lennon's song God, uh, which you can find covered or by Lennon in assorted places. And Imagine, which right, everybody is, is. And, and, and nothing's better than Imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I could deal without the communism in it, but... Uh... Generally, that's a very moving song. I have nothing against communism. That's a list of some of the stuff that I have in in my portable MP3 player. Uh, yeah, you got anything to add? There? Oh boy, I don't know. You you did a very long list. I mean, the the one glaring omission I think was Nine Inch Nails, of course. Oh, of course. Um, there's, I mean, uh, your God is dead. I mean, I don't know how you can get more atheistic than that. And, that's true. Uh, the, uh, you know, I I tend to. It's a little angry. Yeah, yeah. On my angry moments, I I generally can't buy into the whole depression thing. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. he's, judging from the last album, I think he's on antidepressants now, and and there goes the talent. He does seem to be getting better as far as emotionally. Yeah, and musically, not so much, but... um, so that's that's an obvious addition. I uh, generally my musical tastes are n- not shared by most people, but I, I could think um, <laughs> I, I like a lot of electronica, which tends to not have lyrics, but um, at least not ones that you can. There's an understand. artist, uh, Boom Bip, who has a song. What is it? Um, the Heart of the Matter, I think, is the name of it, and it's. Um, it's a very beautiful and moving um, piece about living one's life without all sorts of metaphysical beliefs. That's really good. There's there's also one that we definitely have to say we would be we would be wrong not to, and that is Love Fossil, local Grand Rapids band who Provide does us a, with our theme song. Yes, our theme song is from Love Fossil, and um, uh, one of their members that I've uh, talk to personally to get permission to use that track uh, is a really charismatic and fun guy and I was hoping to get him on a future episode so maybe we should have a 
skeptical entertainment episode where we talk about mm. movies and music and stuff along these lines. So um, send th- in your suggestions. Yeah, that's not actually on the on the schedule yet. But um, by God, we're going to put it. Yeah, start sending them out now, and let's let's uh, get our listeners some access to some great entertainment, and maybe support some artists, Mm -hmm. maybe local artists where you live. I think everybody on this podcast really appreciates supporting local endeavors and local artists. And uh, please um, give us a heads up on who's new and exciting in your neck of the woods. Preferably with some sort of thematic tie-in to our show content, but uh, but you don't have to be too legalistic about that. Right. So, and also books, movies, TV shows, um, anything that you run across in pop culture, uh, yeah. send us our way. Pop culture and religious skepticism, an upcoming episode of Reasonable Doubts as decided right now. You heard it here first. <laughs> Before Luke even. So we look forward to that. We are going to leave you with a Stranger Than Fiction. Bless this bottled water. This report comes to us from Lisa Miller at Newsweek. Yes, it's finally come to this. They are bottling holy water. Lisa Miller writes, quote, Inspired perhaps by vitamin and energy waters... A number of new companies have begun making more explicit claims. Their water doesn't just promote good health. It actually makes you good. Holy drinking water, produced by a California-based company called Wayne Enterprises, which is disturbing to me because that's the company that Batman owns, uh, is blessed in the warehouse by an Anglican or Roman Catholic priest, after a thorough background check, of course. Do they actually label on it if it's Anglican or Catholic blessed? I, I, it doesn't say in the article that they do, but I really think they should because – Yeah, it's quality control. Uh, like a crucifix or rosary, a bottle of holy drinking water is a daily reminder to be kind to others, says Lucius Fox, Wayne CEO. No, it's not Lucius Fox. That's a, that's a geek reference. Wow, you're really cranking out the geek yeah. references. Uh, Brian German is actually the uh, CEO of, of Wayne Enterprises. It turns out that uh, it's purified municipal water. So, you know, your Brita can uh, um, churn out the same kind of water. Sold with 10 different Christian labels. The Virgin Mary bottle, for example, has the Hail Mary prayer printed on the back in English and Spanish. It's so comical. I, I, I really could not believe this story for the longest time. Thought for sure it was a hoax. These, these bottles are very, very trendy mm-hmm. in, in, in their design. And then they have these images that are uh, classic that, icons. Yeah, yeah. Really. It truly looks like something from The Onion. Yeah, I mean, I mean it does. these bottles look like they were um, created by comic geniuses, and apparently, and they're dead serious. They are dead serious, um, and they they report that people are putting fewer of these bottles in the trash um, because they don't want to discard the image of of Jesus or Mary. Instead, they refill them with other beverages. So <laughs> you, I don't know if the, maybe the holiness keeps on giving. Uh, yeah, I mean, a is, residue is the holiness. water holy, or or can the the bottles actually be um, um, solemnized? Well, it's, what's great is don't they have like labels on these bottles for different things that they'll do for you, like um, like compassion or 
repentance or <laughs> these different things that different bottles are supposed to help you with? Or yeah, it, it looks just like, like vitamin water, yeah. only instead of, you know, fortifying your immune system, it uh, fortifies your, your soul. Uh, clearly, somebody saw all these herbal bullshit drinks that are out now. Oh, energize, refresh yeah. um, with a guava, you know, cactus and... Uh, and all this and, and thought, oh, my God, you know, if people buy that, they'll definitely buy this. The only thing I can't figure out is I believe for Catholics, it's a uh, it's a sin to drink holy water. But apparently it's working because they're selling it. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to look in on that. I have no idea. That would be truly odd if that was the case. Mm-hmm. Well, odder, really. Yes. Well, I guess that about does it for today. Please make sure you tune in next week to hear part two of our interview with Tanner Edis. And feel free to send in any comments uh, about this show or others in the interim. www.doubtcast.org is our website. Doubtcast at gmail.com is our email address. And we look forward to hearing more from you guys. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.